0: Alright, let's pray together. God, thank You for Your goodness. Your Scriptures, Jesus, You taught us to pray that Your Kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven to recognize that Your greatness, Your goodness, the fact that You are God, that we are not, is good news. And so I pray that as we open Your Word today, Holy Spirit, would You speak to us? Would Your Word be living and active in Your church? For the glory of Jesus and everybody said, Amen. Amen. The Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, instinctively once said these words, and they'll be on the screen so you can follow. He said this, I think when a man says, I never doubt it is quite time for us to doubt Him. It is quite time for us to begin to say, Ah, poor soul, I am afraid you are not on the road at all. For if you were, you would see so many things in yourself and so much glory in Christ, more than you deserve, that you would be so much ashamed of yourself as to even say, it is too good to be true. And yet, the beauty of that statement is that it is in fact true. That the Gospel is good news, that the incarnation of Christ, that Jesus stepped out of heaven onto earth to live among His people, pay that price for our sin on that Roman cross to rise again, is good news. But we were encouraged last week, at the end of John 20, that Jesus is very, very willing to step right into your moments of doubt and speak a word to that doubt. That the aftermath of the resurrection, surprisingly was not world peace, it was not the spreading of the Gospel immediately to the ends of the earth, but rather it was the disciples hiding in fear. And so Jesus had a word for that, but the end of John chapter 20 verse 31 tells us that there is a belief in Jesus that leads to life. And that is the life we're after. That is the life we want to see and know. That is the life that Jesus talked about when He said, you don't ever have to walk in darkness again. I want that. I want that. Another giant of the Christian faith, of Christian thought and thinking was John Calvin who agreed by saying these words, Surely, while we teach that faith ought to be certain and assured, We cannot imagine any certainty that is not tinged with doubt or any assurance that is not assailed by some anxiety. You see, when we sing things like we have been all morning about, God, you have done great things, we know that. But I know some of your stories. I stand up here and I look you in the eye and I know that right now it doesn't feel like God's done great things for you. And so we stand in a long line of witnesses and faithful presences and faithful followers of Jesus who are willing to point out that though things are sure, there is the anxieties of life. There is that tinge of doubt that makes us come back again and again and again and again. It's why I think the Apostle Paul said, just as you received Christ, Continue to walk in Him because there's never a moment where we don't need Him, right? There's never a moment where one phone call can change everything. There's never a moment where we don't live in that reality. And so in the Scriptures, John, continuing this gospel narrative that he wrote so that we could believe, right? That's what his declaration was at the end of our sermon last week, is that he's writing these things so that you can believe and find life in the name of Jesus. And he's building on that story of doubt. And we step into John chapter 21. If you have a Bible, you can meet me there. And just as Thomas had his doubts, just as the disciples were hiding in fear, what is so interesting is Jesus appears to them, Thomas touches the wounds. Think about that. Think about just the practicality of a resurrected Lord who you watched die, who you watched get wrapped up, who you watched get buried, who you watched a massive stone get rolled in front of His tomb, suddenly is standing in your room the door that you didn't open and letting you touch Him. If I told you that was going to happen next weekend, you would rightly send me somewhere else and take away my credentials to stand in front of you, right? I think sometimes we forget just how the humanity of situation. We're like those disciples, they saw Jesus alive and they were confused and fear like what's wrong with them? It's like, well, no, like you've never seen someone come back from the dead either, right? Now, granted, they were present for the Lazarus thing, but you know, us humans, we're forgetful. And that was essentially what we saw last week is that even in our moments of doubt, Jesus will step right into that and speak to our doubt that He is ever so willing to continually step back into the places of doubt in your life and speak to you in those moments. It's an amazing reality that we live in the Kingdom of God. But in this aftermath of the resurrection... I find it so interesting that they spend time, they have two moments where the resurrected Jesus appears to them and it still has not led them to the place of great faith. It's amazing to me that now John feels the need to tell us about a third time where Jesus comes and meets His disciples and has to show them His power so that they would believe and find life in His name. Does that sound like any of our lives? God, I know what You did last year. I know what You did five years ago. I know what You did ten years ago. I've watched You show up, but I'm going to need You to do it again. We just sing these songs and we declare those things because they are aspirational. We are declaring that we know who God is, but man, I need to taste and see again that He is good. And I am preaching to myself this morning as much as I am preaching to you. We need those constant interactions with the Spirit of God. That's why He says, abide in Me and I in you, and then you will bear much fruit. Right? There's no shortcuts to the presence of God. He is everywhere, but that doesn't mean you are tasting and seeing that He is good. And so we have to do the work as they say. But look at John chapter 21. Look at the first three verses here before we dive into the rest of it. And I just I want to set the table here for us in John chapter 21, where the Bible says this, after this, Jesus revealed himself again. Lift up your voice and say, again. This is the third time he's revealing himself again to the disciples by the sea of Tiberias. And John says, and He revealed Himself in this way. I love the fact that Jesus is willing to pursue His disciples in so many different ways. He pursued them outside the tomb. He pursued them in hiding. And now they have decided, as we'll see in a second, to just return to what is normal. They've decided to return back to what they know, to return back to their roots, to return back to where it was comfortable. And I totally get that. I don't know about you, but sometimes it would just be tempting. It would just be nice. And frankly, I just do it sometimes. And we return back to what is comfortable instead of stepping forward into what we know God may be calling us to Am I speaking anybody's language or are all you all on the front foot all the time with great assurance and I should just let you do this instead? <laughs> You're like, no, like that's humanity, right? It's human life. I know your stories. I know a lot of your stories. And that is why Jesus said in John 15, right? Apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. But... What we've been saying all through John's Gospel is we don't really believe that. We don't really believe that because many of you have built businesses. Many of you have built families. Many of you have built homes. You've built businesses. But at the end of the day, what is that nothing? What is that something? What are we after? What is the thing that Jesus is talking about? And so this is where the disciples are. I can only imagine the amount of conversation, the amount of interactions, the amount of miracles that they have seen that would all just be swirling in their atmosphere of their heart. The anxieties of life, as Scripture calls them, in this moment, and so they just go back to the boat. <laughs> and I get it. But look at this. Verse 2, Simon Peter... Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into a boat, but that night they caught how much? They caught nothing. I love that detail in the story. Because so often when we return to what is comfortable, we return to something that God's not called us to return to. You see, God is gracious enough to not follow us back to what He didn't ask us to go back to. And I say it that way because that matters. God may not have called you backwards to what He is attempting to do that is forwards. And so we have this collision of wills here. That is subtle, but it is yet still there. When when Jesus invited you and I and invited His disciples to pray that His kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven, there are aspects to that. But one of those aspects is the conclusion, the fruit of that, is that we would look at the world with Jesus and participate. What we talked about a couple weeks ago is that we have a vocation in the world. We are the image bearers of God. Paul said it this way in Corinthians, that we are his ambassadors and God is making his appeal to the world through us. And my question is, and I think what Jesus is asking them here, is what are we projecting to the world? Because to be sure, and some of you we've had this conversation, there is some version of church that we're, we're not interested in projecting to the world. True? Yeah. But there is a version that is life to the full. There is a version where the Holy Spirit indwells His people and they bear much fruit That's what we're after, but we have to walk through these moments of doubt. We have to walk through these moments of calling. We have to walk through these things so that we can orient ourselves around the fact that apart from him, we're not going to do it. That is where our strength comes from. And so here we are in this very realistic scenario. The disciples have been through a lot, if you think about it. They followed Jesus for three years. They watched Him die on the cross at the hands of Roman and Jewish leaders. They saw Him return from the dead. They touched His scarred body. And it seems that they do the human thing. (laughs) They go fishing. Can I get an amen in church? (laughs) Fishing is biblical sport. In light of last week's sermon on doubt though, despite the fact that there's a lot of things we could look at in this text, what I want you to see is just Five interactions, five connections that Jesus made with his disciples in and despite their doubt. Because that's the context here. We need to remember that, that the context of this story is that they were in fear. Thomas was in doubt. And then at the end of that interaction, they just decide to go fishing. (laughs) And here it is, the third time Jesus appears to his disciples disciples and so what we've been saying is believing in Jesus name brings life we need his presence so I want to unpack these five connections quickly before we come to the communion table together today but look at verse 4 with me and let's get the rest of the story before we unpack it verse 4 just as day was breaking Jesus stood on the shore yet his disciples did not know that it was Jesus Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Make the connections, right? They go out and they go fishing and they catch nothing. Jesus shows up and He speaks and they catch something. It's important to connect these dots. So much fish that they could barely Get them. Verse 7, The disciple whom Jesus loved, John referring to himself, therefore said to Peter, It's the Lord. Like there's no other explanation than He has done great things, right? It's the Lord. That's the only way that this works. We are fishermen. We know what we're doing. There was no fish on that side of the boat. And yet, here we are. Verse 7, John is speaking to Peter. It's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, just like Peter would... Puts on his outer garment, because they were not far from the land, but a hundred yards off. Throws himself into the sea. Drop down to verse 9. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, and fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask Him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. And then John says this, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to His disciples after He was raised from the dead. The first thing, the first Connection. The first interaction that I want you to see is this, that Jesus met them where they were. There is a notion and this significance of meeting them at the beach while they are on the boat is significant and can't really be understated because many people trying to follow Jesus live under the assumption that they have to clean up before they can show up. And that is not the gospel at all. As a matter of fact, even upon receiving saving grace from the Lord, 1 Corinthians 1 tells us that God actually chooses to use the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And we could unpack that, but the the reality is that this, praise God that He doesn't leave us alone until we clean up. Can you imagine what that would be like? That would be no gospel at all. That would be bad news. Because it's His work in us that produces that fruit. And it should go without saying that the disciples have returned to what they know. That makes total sense to me. They've gone back to where they know they can provide for themselves, where they can be comfortable, and it's here that Jesus meets them. He met them in Jerusalem and now He's meeting them where they are. Not in that famous upper room yet. Not on the steps of the Capitol. Oh, that's a conversation for a different time. Or in a revival tent or somewhere, no, no, at the beach while they were fishing. Important for us to wrap our minds around, God doesn't need us to always do something extraordinary, when really what he's asking us is to be ordinary and be faithful. He may call some of you to do something extraordinary, but it doesn't begin in extraordinary, right? Right? Peter would go on to do some extraordinary things, but here's Peter having seen the resurrected Lord going back to the boat. So important. And again, he won't leave them there, but I find it to be no small detail that this is where he finds them and meets them and where he chooses to chase them down. And lest you be skeptical, I brought some more Scriptures. Matthew eleven twenty eight: 28, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Revelation twenty two seventeen. The Spirit and the bride say, "Come," and let the one who hears say, "Come," and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Psalm thirty four eighteen. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. First John four ten. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The point is that He meets us where we are. There is no expectation that you would clean up before you can show up. And that's such an important foundation because the rest of what comes in Acts is not a work of man, it's a work of God. Whatever happens in the life of Redeemer City Church isn't a work of man, it's a work of God. And so when we take the Gospel to our neighborhood, the Gospel to our nation, the Gospel to the ends of the earth, it's simply because the Spirit of God chooses to work in His people. But if we lose that vision for life, if we lose our vision up, and we lose the vision of Him working in our life, and we lose the vision of Him working through us into the world then what do we have? We have another man-made club that we are not after. And so Jesus met them where they were. And that's significant. And so I don't know what you walked in here today with. I don't know what you expected when you came. I don't know what you're going to do after this. But at the end of the day, God brought you in here And He wants to say to you that He wants to meet you where you are. But don't get confused. He won't leave you there. (laughs) And that's good news too. Because, number two, and at the expense, at the potential of oversimplifying, I found this to be so fascinating this week. That Jesus talked to them. Think about that. Of all the things that could happen. I mean, if it was me who came back from the dead, me who saved the world from their sins, and then I met them when they were afraid, let them touch my body, and they ran for the boat, I would have come with a different message than Jesus came. But He didn't. I love this fact. There's something incredibly normal about this story. Jesus is on the beach, tending a fire, and calling out fishing advice to a group of professional fishermen who then realize it was Jesus, haul in a miraculous catch that doesn't even break their net, and they return to the beach, and Jesus is cooking them breakfast. Again, if I'm setting up the Kingdom of God coming on earth as it is in heaven, I'm not cooking breakfast on the beach. And yet, this is who our God is. The Scripture says that He's the same yesterday, and on the seventh day... After God looked at all He had created, He did what? He rested. Here's Jesus, the Savior of the world. (laughs) The propitiation for our sins, insert any glorious doctrine you want, gets off the cross, out of the tomb, and He goes to the beach. (laughs) And He's cooking His disciples breakfast because they're not quite ready to turn the world upside down for the Kingdom of God love the normalcy here. love what's happening. And at the risk of being too simplistic, I just want you to know that Jesus wants to talk to you. At a very simple pleasure and a very simple joy and at a very simple relational plateau, Jesus is looking for you to abide in Him. Nothing else in your spiritual life will connect until you spend time with Christ. It's not going to happen. Whether you are 10 years old, 15 years old, 25, 55, 85, it doesn't matter. This is the story of Christianity. This is the story of prayer. It isn't about lobbing requests at God. It's about talking with God and listening to God. Listen to what Tertullian, the early church father, said. He said it this way, Prayer cleanses us from sin, drives away temptations, stamps out persecutions, Comforts the faint hearted, gives new strength to the courageous, brings travelers safely home, calms the waves, confounds robbers, feeds the poor, overrules the rich, lifts up the fallen, supports those who are falling, and sustains those who stand firm. There is no substitute for abiding in Christ. I find it fascinating that in the aftermath of the resurrection, before the ascension, there's this period of rest where Jesus is cooking His disciples' breakfast on the beach and just simply wants to have a conversation with them. This is telling about what the Kingdom of God looks like. Because number three, He could never do if there was too much to do to spend time with jesus because number three jesus instructed them if you look back at verse six it's he said cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some listen from a worldly standpoint they had every right to say you don't know what you're talking about we are professional fishermen we've done this for a long time our dads did it, our granddads did it, our great granddads did it. We know what we're doing, and yet in this moment, they were so human that they were like, you know what? We're going to try and throw it on that side, because this side not working, right? And I love that part, that they, even in their doubt, were listening. They were listening. Let, let me say to you this way, there's always an invitation to Follow. There's nothing coercive here in the text, nothing demeaning, nothing overtly difficult, except that Jesus is not the expert in this particular situation. And yet the invitation is to follow. I love that. And I'm no fisherman, but I don't think cast your net on the other side was a groundbreaking tactical advantage in fishing. That wasn't what it was really about at all. The invitation Jesus was giving was to follow. To trust the simple things that He's speaking to us. We often struggle, I don't know about you, we often struggle to follow instruction. (laughs) You know, there's a lot of answers to our issues, aren't there? But we struggle to listen. We'd rather do. We'd rather not stop. And yet, our struggle to Jesus often has less to do with Jesus and more to do with my desires of the flesh. Does it not? Polycarp, another first century writer, early church father, writing in the first generation after Jesus, church history tells us he was an apprentice under John himself who wrote the very Gospel we're studying, said this about following Jesus. He said, Let us therefore forsake The vanity of the crowd and their false teachings and turn back to the Word delivered to us from the beginning. The obvious, obvious connection here is what John unpacks as the Word in John chapter 1 where we began this study at the beginning of the year. When the Scripture says that in the beginning was the Word and the Word became flesh, that the very Word of God was Jesus come in the flesh, and our opportunity, our invitation, is to now trust and follow Jesus in real, physical, bodily form, on the beach eating breakfast. Because listen, with so much vying for your attention, so much distraction offering you love and hope and happiness in this world apart from Jesus, We need a center. We need a north star for truth. And it's the story of Jesus from beginning to end in the Scriptures that invite us to apprentice ourselves under Jesus. So this account not only provides a third narrative, resurrection account, complete with eyewitness details which are important, but establishes Jesus' power to draw the fish when His disciples could not do it on their own. And certainly that has a story to tell for the great commission that they would be given to go into all the world and preach the Gospel. That they might look back and say, oh, that casting the net on the other side was never really about us catching 153 fish. It's going to connect at some point through the power of the Holy Spirit that the work of God in the world is something we get to participate in, but never something that we actually make happen. Number four gets very personal at this point. Jesus serves them. If you look at verse 9, I think it's interesting that when they get out on land, they see a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. As we get ready to step to the communion table let's not lose the fact that God's been feeding people for thousands of years. That spiritually speaking, when you come to the table, what Paul calls in 1 Corinthians 10 this mystery where we participate in the body and blood of Jesus, we can clearly see that it's still the things. And yet, we can clearly see that there's more going on than meets the eye. It is what... The New Testament calls the mystery, which is Christ in us. So important. But knowing they had been out all night, Jesus serves them what they need. He builds the fire ahead of time, He provides the fish and bread, He cooks it. It's such a simple act, but then He invites them to bring what they have. Isn't that amazing? He's already got fish cooking. He's already got bread. He's already built the fire. It's already ready. And yet He looks at them and says, bring some of the fish that you have. And oh, by the way, it's all the fish that He brought for them. So at the end of the day, apart from Christ, you can do nothing. Even the fish they hauled in was because He brought them fish. Are you picking up what I'm laying down? This is all about Jesus and His invitation to follow Him and He will serve you He will provide for you. And number five, Jesus fed them. He will feed you too. (laughs) In another act of obvious movement of God, He feeds them in verse 12. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, the Scripture says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. And we have thought about that and talked about that in the church for, for 2,000 years. And yet even in the aftermath of the resurrection, the crucified and risen Lord is serving His people. He's feeding His people. I love the way Eugene Peterson kind of sums this up and I want to end with this as we get ready to come to the communion table. Because how do you tie all that up? Like it's all about God. I get it. How do we tie how do we tie that up when you've got disciples here who just desperately needed Jesus? What do we do with that? Here's the way Eugene Peterson says it. He says one way to define spiritual life. So the whole thing. One way to define spiritual life is getting so tired and fed up with yourself, you go on to something better, which is following Jesus. I don't think I could sum the thing up better than that. To get so tired of doing it myself, that it's time to move on to something better. Following Jesus. I'm tempted to go back to the boat I'm tempted to go back to what I do, to what I know, but at the end of the day, I'm tired of chasing that. Tired of chasing what I can do. Let's do something better, church, in following Jesus. Amen? So let me pray, and then I'm going to invite you to stand, and the music will play, and I'll give you some instructions here in a minute. But why don't you stand with me and let's pray. And then we'll turn our attention to the table. Let's pray. God, thank You for the chance to be gathered as Your people. It is not lost on us that it is Thanksgiving week, that the whole nation will in some way, shape, or form pause and attempt to be grateful. God, in this moment, I'm reminded of the Scripture, the songwriter, who said that we enter Your gates with thanksgiving. We come into Your courts with praise and bless Your name. Father, we've learned so many things about who You are and who we are and who Jesus is and who the Holy Spirit is through this study of John's Gospel and that we are left at the conclusion here simply saying it's time for us to move on to something better and that better is Jesus. So we are grateful. We're grateful for Your goodness. We're grateful for Your love. We're grateful that You did not come to condemn the world, but that the world through You might be saved. That is our confession, Lord, as we come to the communion table together. And as You're just in this Moment of prayer as a church family. I want to read to you from 1 Corinthians 10 before you come forward. And I want you to just consider what is being said here in 1 Corinthians 10. See, because Paul's writing to a group of people that he loves, people that he's done life with, a church that he's been a part of planting. And you feel that in verse 14 where he says, My beloved, flee from idolatry. And really as we come to the communion table, that is the invitation. Because I don't know about you, but if you're willing to be honest today, whether you've followed Jesus for 10 minutes or 10 years or 100 years, the one thing that just never goes away is my desire for the things of the flesh. And every time we come back to this table, we come back to these elements, we come back to these Scriptures, it's a fresh invitation for us to examine ourselves, as 1 Corinthians 11 says, and flee idolatry. Why would I do that? Listen to what the rest of this says. Verse 15 of 1 Corinthians 10, I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Then he says these words, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Why do we do it in church? Because, verse 17, because there is one bread. We who are many are one body because we all partake of one bread. This is the whole deal. We reject our idols and we choose to follow something better, which is Jesus. Amen. And so as the music starts to play, I just want to invite you to come forward to...